Let's pray. Father, we ask once again that you come and help us as we read this word, as we study this passage. Speak to our hearts. Convict us where we are uh, forgetting you of these many places, the hard, dark places of our hearts. We ask that you uh, give us hearts that are soft, uh, that are uh, formable, and that you might do a work in our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I haven't actually dismissed our sprouts, so if there are any children that haven't yet gone, I think they might have. Um, they can go. I thought Daniel was getting up to go to sprouts. <laughs> it's like, just conf- confuse me for a second. A friend of mine asked me what Christians believe about Jesus, which is a good question to ask at Christmas time, isn't it? Why is, why is Jesus... Uh, why is Jesus such a big deal, he asked. Why is Jesus so important to us? And so I went ahead and I explained something like, well, we believe that God uh, is the creator of all and that God created everything good and uh, uh, created humans and then humans just messed everything up. (laughs) And so God, uh, God came into the world and became human and fixed everything that we messed up. And he sort of turned his head a little bit. Like, you actually believe that God became human? You, you, you believe that? That was sort of his response. Like, you don't actually, so you're saying Christians, this is like what Christians have historically, but you don't actually believe that, do you? That God, okay, if there is a God, all right, if there is a creator, that this creator became human. So there was a time when there was a human walking this planet, and that human was God. That's what you're telling me. And I was like, yeah, that's, I believe that. This is why Jesus is a big deal to us. This is why we make a big deal about the idea that God became human. The God-man, God in the flesh, the man Jesus Christ is fully human. And he is fully God. This is scandalizing. Sometimes I think we are so used to the manger scene, you know, at Christmas time, little, little clay painted manger scenes with the little baby Jesus right there in the center. We're so used to this scene, this idea, this concept of God with us. God became, it becomes part of our language and we forget how, we forget how scandalizing it actually is. Frederick Bickner said this. He said, Until we too have taken the idea of the God man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, as my friend was, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. The God man. This is dirty. This is messy. This is shocking. This is irreligious, and salvation is absolutely impossible 
without it. Why did God become human? Well, that's the question that we're asking this Christmas season. Last week, Charlie Brown, our uh, church planter in residence, did a phenomenal job preaching on the first aspect of why God became man, and that was because we need to be righteous in order to stand before God. I don't know about you. I know about me. And I wouldn't describe my entire life as a life of complete obedience, complete righteousness. How can I ever stand before God without righteousness? So Christ came, God in the flesh, the one man able to live a completely obedient, righteous life before the Father. He lived it. His life then is lived as a representative for you. He is the head of all humanity. He represents all of us. Therefore, for all who are in Christ, his righteousness is donated to you. So you can stand before God. That was basically last week's sermon. But here's the problem if we just stop right there. And it's a problem that came up as I was sharing uh, uh, with, with a man I was sharing the gospel with him. We were talking about Christ, talking about salvation. And uh, he's, he's from Baltimore City. Uh, he grew up on the, in the streets, uh, had a very difficult life, uh, ended up in gangs, selling drugs, uh, uh, criminal activity, etc. And as we're talking about Christ, and we're talking about salvation and his soul, and we're talking about how Christ lived the life that he should have lived and that God is Christ's righteousness is being donated into your account. He said, but you don't understand. And I said, I don't understand what? He said, you don't understand some of the things that I have done. He said, I have done things that God can never forgive. I have done things that I can never get over. If I can't get over it, then how can God ever get over it? It is impossible for me to ever stand before God and be accepted because of the things that I have done. See, here's the reality. We have the righteousness of Christ that is, the theological word is imputed to us, that is given, donated to us, But the other part of the problem is that we already have this mountain of guilt. This mountain of sin that is ever before our eyes. What are the things that you hope God will never expose? What are the secrets that you might have? The guilty pleasures that you would never admit to anyone. The sorrow that you walk with every day because of the things that you have done to another. The grief that we carry because we have, we have ruined things. What do, the question we're asking today is this, what do we do with this mountain? 
What do we do with this mountain of guilt and sin? And how does God in the flesh, the God-man, Christ, coming as a human, how does Christ answer this question for us? Well, here's the, the main point of my sermon, and that is this, that, that uh, God had to become human so that you could be forgiven. My whole point is there was no other way for God to forgive you than to become human. That's what Isaiah 53 is pointing us toward. Isaiah 53 is this beautiful prose. It's this, this, this prophetic song that just swells in intensity and has this climactic ending, and it's, it's uh, magnificent. We're going to just walk through. I would sing through it if I could. I don't, I'm not going to do that, but I, I wish. That's, when I read Isaiah 53, I wish, I wish I could just sing this sermon. I wish, I wish my voice was beautiful enough to where I could just sing this to you. It deserves to be sung. Four stanzas that we're going we're gonna to sort of float through today in Isaiah chapter 53. They cover these four aspects of the God-man and how He rightly forgives you. His entry into the world. Second stanza, His role in the world. Third, His demeanor as He went to the cross. And fourth, His accomplishment. My hope is that you would know that God is ready to forgive the biggest sinner in this room. I wish we knew who that was so we could have that person stand up and just be like, okay, so God, everybody knows this person, all right? God can forgive this person, all right? And we would all, wow, that's amazing. But we don't know who that is. But we do know that God is ready to forgive the greatest sinner. And that's what I want you to hear this morning as we focus on the God-man Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 53. So let's go there. The first stanza, we see his entry. His entry is lowly. A lowly entry. Look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Now, if you are a green thumb, if you have a green thumb, and you want to plant a vegetable garden, moving to the Sahara Desert would probably be a bad idea. You don't want to plant a garden in the desert. You don't want to plant a garden in a wasteland. Beautiful life does not spring from dry, crusted ground. A root does not grow in the sand. 200 years ago, people that lived on the East Coast began moving to the Midwest. Why? Because what they found in the Midwest, in Ohio, etc., they found soil that was rich. They found soil that was moist, that would grow things. You plop a seed in there, bam, you've got a potato. Well, potatoes grow downward. Bad illustration. You've got a corn stalk. There you go. 
uh, dry ground does not produce life. Here's the reality. God didn't change soil. God didn't move from, from this soil and say, I'm going to find another people who, who is uh, uh, maybe a, a little more moist, <laughs> who has a little more fertile soil, and from that people will I bring the Messiah. No, God said, I'm going to stick with the same old soil. Because God had made promises to this soil. God told Abraham that through his seed, there will come one who will bless the entire world. He told King David that there is one coming who will forever sit on his throne out of this old soil. Now, by the time Jesus was born, the soil had been all but dried up. The moisture of the prophet's voice had not watered the ground in years. The, the uh, rain of God's Spirit seemed to be shut off. How can life ever come from this? How can anything good ever come out of something that is so corrupt, something that is so dry, something that is so lifeless? And against all odds, in the middle of death, in the middle of concrete, against all odds, there was a root. There was a young plant that sprouted forth that would change everything. Against all odds, in this soil, fueled by the promises of God, the God-man was born. A lowly soil. Even his appearance was lowly. Look at the text. There was nothing to look at. No form or majesty. We should look at him. No beauty. That we should desire him. L- listen, if I was writing this story myself and I was talking about the God-man coming into this world and I was going to describe what this God-man is going to be like and look like. The looks of Brad Pitt, right, with the voice of Morgan Freeman. (laughs) The smile of Oprah. The talent of Kathy Bates. I could go on. I mean, we would just say, let's just create the the perfect person. The God-man comes into this world not only from a lowly soil, but with lowly appearance. Described as nothing to look at. Alright, so no beauty that you should desire Him. Christ was not going to win over the world with His looks and His personality. No. He was one that you would hide your face from. He was one that you would be a little embarrassed by. I don't know him. I never knew him. His appearance was lowly. His reception was lowly. Look at the text. He was despised and rejected. All right, so this isn't Brad Pitt coming into the world and the red carpet laid out. No, he was, he was, 
the world was created through him and the world knew him not. Rejected by the very world that he created. His, 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 uh, his reception was, was, was lowly. He never, never was on the cover of Time, Time magazine. Never lived in a castle. Hardly did any traveling. Never made it to Rome. Despised. Rejected. See, at Christmas time, we, we have these cute little manger scenes, all right? We, we, I mean, we picture it, and oh, it's like so warm and cuddly, you know, and there's the baby Jesus in this oh-so-comfy, you know, manger with the hay flowing over the side, and there's this warm glow in the background, you know, and there's Mary and Joseph and all the animals smiling just next to no dung on the ground anywhere, an angel overhead, of course, a fireplace with stockings hung waiting for old St. Nick, right? No, the, the manger scene is, is, is lowly. The manger scene was, was anything but cute. A young girl pregnant before her time, in pain, probably rejected and despised by her friends, questioned. There she lies. It's cold. It is dark. She gives birth on a dirt floor. Droppings are all over the place. An awful smell. No nurse to clean the baby. A cloth wipes the fluid off of his face and he is wrapped in it. As his father, or as Joseph, his adopted father, stepfather, wipes the forehead of his mother. He's laid in a feeding trough. His, his, his lowly entry, on one hand, it communicates to us, uh, it's encouraging to us because it does remind us that God, uh, it doesn't matter what family we're from, it doesn't matter how irreligious your family is, it doesn't matter the talent, the gifts, the looks that you have, God will and can use absolutely anybody for his glory that he chooses. Everybody say amen to that. But that's not even the greatest encouragement. The greatest encouragement that we receive from his lowly entry is the, uh, the sim- or what the lowly entry symbolizes and pictures. All right? Christ is not coming into this world with fanfare. Christ is being born into this world not as a king, but as a servant. And this is exactly where Isaiah goes next in his second stanza. What we see pictured in his entry, what we see even pictured with the manger scene, is the role of a suffering servant. And so we get to verses 4 through 6 in Isaiah 53, and this becomes the heart of the passage. Let me just read these three verses once again to you. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. King of kings, Lord of lords, the preeminent of all creation by Him, All things were made, whether thrones or kingdoms or rulers or authorities, all things were made by Him, through Him, and for Him to bring Him glory. Yet, this Lord of all, this President of presidents, placed Himself under authority, placed Himself under you and I, to serve us in some way, to become our servant. Now, what does that mean? Well, what does a servant do? A servant carries the load of his master. Jesus became a servant so that he could carry something for us. What we see in Isaiah 53 is exactly what Jesus came to carry as our servant. Let's just look at it. I want to point out three things. In verse 4, we see that He carries our sorrow, our grief. You know, the grief that we have, the sorrow that we have because of the ruin that we have created in our life and in someone else's life. The ruin that others have created in, in, in our life. He comes to carry our sorrow and our grief. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. He also, in verse 5, look at it, he carries our sin. How? How does he carry our sin for us? It says, he is pierced for our transgressions. Verse 6, he carries our rebellion. We are like sheep. We have all gone astray. We have all rebelled against the Father. This is Romans chapter 1. God has made Himself known in in the sunrise. We can see creation. We can see evidence for the glory of God. Yet we love to make something else God. We love to make the sun God. Or we love to make ourselves God. Or something that we create God, which is really making ourselves God because it's a reflection of how brilliant we are. We are sheep that are rebellious. Given a hundred opportunities on our own, we would constantly turn away and reject God because we are rebellious, biting, mean sheep. He carries our rebellion. He says He bears bears our rebellion, our iniquity, the shameful deeds which we have committed. They are laid on Him, and He dies as our suffering servant in our place, carrying our guilt. Now, some ask, why couldn't God just forgive? Why couldn't God just forgive? Why couldn't God just say, I forgive you? I'm just going to let it go. 
All right? I know, you killed somebody? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that one go. I forgive you. <laughs> right? Why, why couldn't God just forgive? Why couldn't? Some, some others might put it this way. Um, if God tells us to just simply forgive people, all right? So if, um, if you wrong me in some way, uh, you hurt me in some way, you speak evil of me, and I want to punch you, all right? It's wrong for me to go home and hit my wife for you and then come back to you and say, it's been taken care of. In your place, I hit my wife. And so I forgive you. So if God doesn't want us to take out the punishment that somebody deserves over here on someone else, and God says, look, just forgive, all right? Just let it go. Why can't God do that? Why doesn't God just simply say, hey, I let it go. I, it's all good, all right? You've shown some sorrow over it. You've shown repentance. It's good. All right, we're good. We're, we're, not, we're not dealing with this anymore. You're in. Why can't God just overlook it? The reason we ask that question is because we don't understand God's holiness. We don't understand God's holiness because we don't understand God's love. Now listen, let me just track with me for a brief moment here. The greatest attribute of God is His love. God is love. Love, then, is the foundation upon which His holiness rests. God is holy because God is love. Now, we don't hear much today of God's holiness, probably because we don't know that God is holy. We don't know what, that mean, what it means that God is holy, or maybe it's just simply because the more we think about God's holiness, the more we shudder. And the very reason we wonder why God doesn't just let it go is because we don't understand His holiness. In God, there is no deceit. In God, there is no pride. In God, there is no lust. In God, there is no wrong thing. God is infinitely holy. He is the holy, holy, holy times infinity God. Now, His love because God is love, His love demands what? Holiness. God cannot, as a holy, righteous, good God, love sin. God cannot overlook one sin. And so then God's wrath is the other side of His love. Because God is love, God punishes sin. Now, someone must bear that punishment. And we have two options. Christ bore our punishment, our rebellion, our iniquity, our transgressions for us on the cross. 
or we bear God's wrath for all of eternity. Why are we to forgive without vengeance? It's because God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. God is not a God that overlooks evil. He's not a God that overlooks wickedness. A a friend of mine was suffering because her daughter had been abused. And she said, how can I not kill this guy? I said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. She said, how, how can I understand that? <laughs> I still want to kill the guy. Here's the reality. That man will suffer under God's wrath for what he did to your daughter for all of eternity. Or, every bit of God's wrath for what he did to your daughter was placed upon Christ, and Christ felt every bit of that guilt and that wrath and that punishment. For us to repay is taking God's role out of God's hands. Friends, we can only forgive others. We can only, we can get along in life without killing those (laughs) that wrong us. Uh, If we understand the atonement, if we understand that the God-man was the one perfect substitutionary sacrifice to bear our punishment, Jesus, as our servant, carried something for us. And what he carried was our sin and guilt. How can God forgive my friend? My friend who says that he can never, you don't understand. How can God forgive my friend? It's because the guilt has been placed on Christ and Christ has taken in himself the punishment for that Sin. God hates robbery. God hates pride. God hates murder. God hates adultery. God hates rape. God hates racism. God hates child abuse. God's love is the foundation of his holiness, and God's love, therefore, demands justice. God cannot overlook one's sin. The guilt of robbery, the guilt of pride, the guilt of murder, the guilt of child abuse, the guilt of every sin of God's people was placed onto Christ on that day and he carried it away from us and he took it into the ground and he was buried under the curse well let's look at his demeanor as he is walking to the cross and we see something here of ourselves. As he's walking to the cross, this is the third stanza in verse 7. It repeats this fact that he did not open his mouth. 
He's oppressed. He's afflicted. He doesn't, he doesn't open his mouth. He's led like a lamb uh, to the slaughter, like a, a, a sheep to the shearer. We could say like a criminal. <laughs> He's led like a criminal to the cross. All right? Pretty humiliating. For the God-man, Lord of lords, King of kings. And as he's led, he does not open his mouth. Why? Well, let me give you two, two reasons. Number one, how can God defend your sin? How can Christ defend your sin? As Christ is walking to the cross to die in your place, and He will be hanging there as a criminal, with our guilt on Him, how can He defend Himself? How can He defend us? And so He walks as the guilty party to the cross. And secondly, and if you're not a Christian, I really want you to understand this and hear this. Christ was uh, resolute in His mission. Christ would not change the chain of events that has been set in place. Christ would not stop anything. He would not pause His mission for a moment, but He had His eyes focused on what He came for that day. Little manger, baby, there He is. This is why He came to die for the sins of the world. And He walks to the cross without opening His mouth. As I read verse 9, I wonder at what point the disciples put two and two together. Like they, they, they were there <clears throat> at the cross when Jesus died. They were there when Joseph of Arimathea took his body and said, I'll put it in my tomb. They were there as they saw, they saw him die between two thieves. I wonder at what point after his death they open up the scroll and they're reading the prophet Isaiah. You get to chapter 3, verse 9. I wonder at what point it sinks in. As they read these words that were written 700 years prior, they read, uh, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth I wonder how they shuddered when they read that the chills that went up their spine as they saw this just happen there Christ dies as a criminal buried in a rich man's tomb as a criminal, dead under the curse of sin. Now, if that's all there is to this story, and if that's all there is to this chapter, then that would not be enough. But we're not finished. The fourth stanza is climactic. In the fourth stanza, as we read, it's as if the heavens burst into celebration. Let's take a look at it. We see in the fourth stanza his accomplishment, his victory. We see God's plan, God's power, and God's provision 
victoriously accomplished by Christ on the cross. Look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, whose idea was it? Was this the idea of Rome? Was this the idea of Israel? Whose idea was it to put Christ on the cross? Was this Jesus' idea because, oh, mean old Father God is up there and he wants to bring down his wrath on these people, so Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to go save them and get in front, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to almost like uh, the, the Trinity is somehow at odds with one another and Jesus wants to do more than the Father wants to do. No, whose idea was it? It was God's idea. The triune God had the idea to redeem you. When? Well, in Acts it says it was according to the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God. When did God plan to save you. I don't know. But it was a long time ago. <laughs> Probably before the first flower ever opened, God had a plan to send Christ into this world. The God-man who would take on the sins of God's people and He would die in their place, absorbing the wrath of God for them. And He would accomplish the forgiveness of their sins. The will of the Lord, the plan of God, was victoriously accomplished in this moment. We also see the celebration of God's power. Look at verse 11. Actually, back up to verse 10. The second half of verse 10. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So he, Christ, the suffering servant, will see his offspring. Now how does a dead man see anything? A dead man can't see his offspring. You know, we celebrate the, the, uh, the person who, who was a martyr. They died for a great cause because of their death. Like, man, great things came out of it. That person doesn't get an opportunity to see it. Have you ever thought about that? Like you have, man, I would love to just die the hero's death. You'll never be able to see that. Christ says he will see his offspring. He will see what has come out of him. He will see what he has bought. He will see the fruit of his labor. How does he see? Well, this is implying here the resurrection of Christ. Victorious power of God raising him from the curse of sin of death risen so that he now can see his offspring the fruit of his labor and as it goes on we see God the father applauding his work look at verse 12 he says therefore I will I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God here is declaring victory for his son. I will divide the plunder. I will make his name great. 
the Father is standing and applauding the work of His Son, risen from the dead. The Father satisfied with the offering for sin. Royalty, honor, kingship. His name will be forever among the greats. He has ascended on high. He has led the captivity free. He will give gifts to men. I'll place Him among the conquering ones. Exalted. He will be given a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord of all. Friends, the world that we live in has a lot of problems. we got a lot of issues. Kids need to be told that they're loved. The poor need to be told that there's hope. The oppressed need to be told that they are free. But the message that we need to hear most of all, and it is the message that undergirds all of our, our other good messages, and that is the message that you are forgiven. We need to hear that God forgives us. You need to know that God forgives you. Our world needs to know that forgiveness is being extended to all who call upon the name of the Lord. And in that forgiveness is life. In that forgiveness is an adoption into a family where they share all of the benefits of their older brother, Jesus Christ. And that they too will rise from the dead one day and will live with God for all of eternity. We need to hear and tell the story of forgiveness again and again and again. That's the message that is radical today. God forgives you. God is extending forgiveness to you. Do you know that outside of Christ, there is no salvation? Outside of Christ, there is no forgiveness. Friends, the wrath of God is coming. And God is right now extending forgiveness to all who call upon the name of His Son. God wills that no man perish. In His mercy, He has provided for us a substitute, a sacrifice. Listen, the idea of sacrifice, that's not a man-made idea. It's not something that Israel did or that we, well, we thought up, uh, like, hey, here's an idea of a sacrifice. We're going to invent... And then God comes along at some point and says, oh, I'm going to use the idea of sacrifice to just show them how much I love them. No. God invented the idea of sacrifice. And God gave us sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, which God's people time and time again did over and over and over, constantly never ending because there was never a sacrifice that was good enough that would actually do what it's supposed to do to prepare us 
for the one true sacrifice who would come once and for all and stand in our place offering His life for us. The sacrifice that accomplished what the sacrifice needed to accomplish for your forgiveness. And do you know that the sacrifice of Jesus is enough to forgive all of your sins? That there is no sinner in this room right now or in this world that is beyond the hope of His forgiveness. What do you regret? What are you hiding? What do you hope that God never exposes? Do you realize that God placed the judgment of that sin on Christ? Do you realize that God is offering forgiveness? Hear His voice. You say, I, I hear these things, but I have a hard time believing it. Cry out and say, God, increase my belief. Increase my faith. Help me see. Help me believe. I pray that every day. God, increase my faith. Help me believe. Let me see. Let these, the scales that are covering my eyes, let them fall from my eyes so that I can see and then see. Look this Christmas season and see. Forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ as we celebrate Christmas this year. We celebrate the God-man. We celebrate the work that has been accomplished through His death on the cross. We celebrate the forgiveness of sins and the hope of resurrection in Christ. And the heavens applaud His work along with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this message of hope that we have here in Isaiah chapter 53 that our sins are forgiven through the work of Christ. I pray that there will be no one that walks out of this building today who has not repented of their sins and found Christ to be a glorious, wonderful Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may stand. Calvary holy mountain sinners ruined by the fall here a pure and healing fountain calls to you to me to all in a world lost full of sin be seated as we uh, 
do every week. We come around the Lord's Supper and we celebrate uh, his, his death until he comes. While, uh, while this meal of, of bread and cup is simple in form, it signifies so much more. It symbolizes all that Christ has done for us and the great hope that we have in him and the hope that we have one day as we live forever with him. If you are in union, union with this church or in fellowship with another church, if you are, uh, have, have repented of your sins and believed in Christ and are in obedience to his commands, we invite you to participate today. The Bible says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you're not a Christian or if for any reason you think it would be inappropriate to take communion today, uh, please feel free to let the elements just pass you by. Um, if you're not a Christian, we want you to know that, uh, that what we're saying is that Jesus is our only hope and we hope that one day you will join us in that. Uh, if you're not taking communion today, there's no shame. Uh, as the elements come, just hand it on to the next person. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and 24 continues, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. And do this in remembrance of me. And so these elements, otherwise common, are set apart for this, this holy use. Let's pray together and thank God for this. God, as we remember the death and the resurrection of uh, Christ, his death, which was enough to forgive us of our sins, his resurrection, which gives us hope that one day we will be reunited with him and given new bodies raised uh, gloriously from the dead. We look forward to that day when we will see him face to face. Remind us of these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.